The Crimes Ireland podcast is intended for a mature audience. Hello and welcome to the Crimes Ireland podcast where we'll share cases of criminality throughout Ireland and maybe some of Irish people abroad once I'm settled in. I will try to be as accurate as possible when recounting the cases here but please bear with me as I have started this alone with little money or experience in podcasting. I'm sure it will become much more obvious the longer you listen. Since there will be a few cases for the next while based on prisoners housed and executed there, I thought the best place to start would be a rundown of the prisons or jails of Derry. But, as a must do for research and other funding needs, it has been made part of the bonus content received by top tier Patreon subscribers. If you choose to subscribe to the top tier or any other, it is still greatly appreciated. For me, the most efficient way to support the show is to donate via PayPal to the email crimesireland at gmail.com. This is also where you can send in questions that you may have. Donations and subscriptions made by listeners help me to pay for more sources for newspaper archives, museum access possibly, and other things that may not have been thought of yet. Garva is a small town located in County Derry in Northern Ireland and it is situated 6 miles from Coleraine. It has the typical features of a small town, with its churches, a library, two primary schools, a small industrial area, a local history museum and a healthcare centre. All of the shops in the town are mostly on Main Street and a quite impressive clock tower sits there. It was founded sometime in the 17th century by George Canning who was an agent for the Ironmongers Company of London. On or around the 18th of March 1908, the two brothers, John, 55, and William Berryman, the latter of two who was, quote, a respectful, hard-working man, a farmer, who was in good health and strength, worked their field like most other days. And like most other days, William's wife of two years, Jane, a maiden named Turner, called them both to dinner. The younger of the brothers, 54-year-old William reached the house before John and he had sat down around the same time John had entered the back door. Also in the house was a residing couple's infant daughter, Esther. The motive for events, according to reports, are due to the following. The brothers had joint ownership of the farm and its property. When William was to be married, they made a deal that the soon-to-be husband would have sole ownership after the ceremony and part of the deal was to pay John in a one-off payment. The deal was followed through and John continued to live with the couple and all was well until shortly after the marriage, when the relationship between them soured. The elder brother John eventually resented the deal that he had made and had made this known several times. He was frustrated that he as the eldest was not the owner nor had any say on the farm. This was bolstered by a casual visitor to their home he said both brothers, quote, seldom or never spoke to each other. Another example was when William tried to sell some timber with John present, and when he and the buyer agreed on a price, John wasn't happy with it and started to intervene. The younger brother told John that it was none of his business and it had nothing to do with the matter. In the hammer in the back interim with the wash basin, he made his way to where William was sitting at the kitchen table and struck him once on the back of the head. 
When Jane tried to intervene, John beat her about the head and shoulders. She also had bruising to her arms, perhaps in a defensive reaction. It's believed William died almost instantly, and Jane may have survived for up to a few hours, but eventually succumbed to the injuries inflicted on her by John. The only two persons left in the house uninjured were baby Esther and John himself. Although Jane did pass eventually, she had the strength to give chase to her brother-in-law. A later trial witness, Nancy Doherty, who is reported as the wife of a local tinsmith, was passing by the house on the opposite side. She had left her own home shortly before to run some errands and her attention had been drawn towards the Behrman house, specifically the front door, where she saw Jane standing in the doorway shouting, Murder! Miss Doherty then saw Berryman, who she could recognise as he ran down a field from the house to the road. Jane shouted after him again with some strain, saying, quote, Murder! Come back! He is dying! And quote, John, come back, for you have killed him! After the murders, John buried the murder weapon in the manure heap at the farmhouse, and his clothing were never found by authorities. It is suspected by police they may have been buried. John also made attempts to stage an area nearby to look as though, quote, tramps were there, reportedly leaving empty bottles and potter and such up a nearby lane. He then made his way to Mahara Road, crossing it and up another lane, which is now part of the Furlough Engineering Yard. And then coming into Bally the Main Road, he met Maggie Brazell. Maggie was approximately 20 years old and making her way home from Garva Town. She had stopped there herself to talk to a local farmer called Johnny Wallace, and when they were almost done, Berryman passed him and asked Johnny the time. Pulling his watch from his pocket, he informed his neighbour that it was 11.30am. Reports from the Garver Library show that John Berryman had, quote, come up to him in a great state of excitement and asked him to come fast to see something. When Wallace asked what it was, he replied, quote, Willie and Jane are laying killed on the floor and also said to them both, come and see what has happened to William Berryman. It seemed John at this stage was very riled up as he repeated different versions of the story to different people. He made it seem to them that he had walked in and discovered both of them without much emotion and casually went off leaving them to get help as was put in the articles. According to Bob Brazell, another neighbour, he said to him, isn't it a wonderful thing that has happened to the Williams? A tramp has killed the both of them. Police were called, and the story about the tramp was repeated to them too. When the police and the doctor arrived around 1.15pm, as stated in the trial documents, they had found both the victims still alive but fully unconscious. Although police had suspicions of John, they searched the area, and by that afternoon, they were sure there were no tramps. Quote-unquote tramps. As John had told them, now the authorities were almost sure their suspicions were right. In the year 1908, the penalty for murder was death by hanging. After not too much time, the murder weapon, the hammer, was found and appeared to have hairs adhered to it, possibly from one or both of the victims. The head wounds matched the shape of the hammer too. Quote, the prisoner's clothes and boots were sent to Professor Winnie of Dublin, he was able to discover on the prisoner's trousers small particles of blood from the knees down, particles which corresponded with spatters of blood found along the under part of the walls of the room in which the crime was committed. 
and quote, the only blood on the floor were the two pulls under each head, showing there was no struggle, no shuffling of feet. On the day of the funeral, John was walking behind the two coffins of his two victims with the rest of the procession off of Boylan's Corner. As he was following along with the rest of the crowd, and they all turned right up Rats Row, now known as Ballynamine Avenue, John probably thought he had gotten away with the murders. He was then arrested by Sergeant Patton and two other constables, and he apparently said, half to himself and half to the officers, quote, Not guilty, sir, not guilty and was then taken to Garva Courthouse and then later on to Coleraine. There, John Berryman was charged with the murders of William and Jane Berryman. The arrest was reported very negatively in the press at the time. Quote, the police officer who made the arrest, who was a stranger on special duty in the neighbourhood, was said by the newspaper reports to not be able to withstand the temptation for effect. Basically, this meant he could not believe the gall of this officer for arresting a murderer at his victim's funeral. Some mourners had uh, reacted very badly to this in the officer's presence. Sometime before the trial, Nancy Doherty was asked to identify the man that she saw that day in a lineup, and she agreed. One of the main officers assigned to this case was called Bain. He had a quote, gathered five or six people off the street and placed them in the barrackyard. Bringing Berryman out to the line, Bain said, quote, take up any position you like among those men. Once he was in the line, Mrs. Doherty was then brought out. The officer asked her to study all these men well and pick out the man she saw running down the field. He was asked by quote, Will he not strike me? And when given the answer of no, she quickly went over to Berryman without hesitation and placed her hand on his arm and said, quote, That's him. At the trial, John was represented by solicitor William McCain, who resided at the Hermitage and had an office near what's reported incidentally as Jane's newsagents in Garva at that time. John pleaded not guilty and the full trial would only last two days. The jury, where it was said they quote, were out overnight, returned a verdict of guilty and the judge, Justice Gibson, passed a sentence of death upon the defendant. Of the jury, it says quote, a number of jurors who did not answer were fined two pounds each. This is about £250 today, or about $180, a decent bit. Justice was very swift in 1908, as John Berryman was hanged in Derry Prison on the 20th of August of that year. On the morning of the execution, quote, Soon after 7 o'clock, numbers began to gather, the female element young and predominating. Quote, it was about three minutes past eight when the grim silence was broken by thin tones of the prison bell sounding the scheming death knell. Berryman refused a stimulant he was offered just before and walked up to the platform. One of the prison chaplains present had said, quote, He never thought a man could meet his death so heroically. After the murders, the farm was kept for the baby of the couple, Esther, to come of legal age to acquire. At that time, it was sold to Bob Brazell, the man who first entered the Berryman house that night. It was sold to him for £375. This is about £45,408 as of recording on March 2021, and the average labourer in 1908 made approximately £90 a year that being approximately £10,898 as of recording. Esther herself then moved to her aunties in the Bush Mills area, 
This was about 20 miles, just under 32.5 kilometers away from where she was. She was given a new name to help protect her identity. In the times after the crime, the house was occupied by several families, and of course rumours of it being haunted came to be. According to some sources, a real fact is that there was still a stain of blood that could not be removed from a wall. Other stories included picture frames falling off of the walls, and furniture moving all on its own. Another source that I used for this recording approached someone who had lived there at the time, and they had saw nothing unusual happen and this same source reported it was a widely held belief in the Garva area that the victims Jane and William were interred at the Main Street Church in the town. The source of their information in the search found a man named Hans Clyde who had access to maps of the graveyard layout. The only other burymans who were buried there is the other buryman brother, George, who died in 1954, and his wife, who died in 1966. The Berryman family were originally from County Tyrone and had no plots to bury in the Garva parish. But where is the true burial place of William and Jane? About a mile or so outside of Garva town itself is an old church close to Curran Road on the left and the graveyard of this ruin along with the ruined church itself is known as Desert Tohill or just desert to the locals. This is where they are said to be buried. Some points to this are that just inside the entrance to Desert Tohill are two prominent Turner headstones. The Turner's family burial plot is based there. This is relevant as Jane's maiden name is Turner. Anecdotal accounts from Bertie Turner, a distant relative of Jane's, said that although being young at the time he is reported to have attended the funeral. Bertie mentioned in some interviews that he remembers his father saying there was desert that they had been laid to rest. In other sources, this one being the Coleraine Chronicle, printed that at the time, 20th of March 1908, quote, At the moment of his arrest, the prisoner was walking behind the hearse at the funeral of the two victims that were on the way to the burial grounds at Desert Tohill. Shortly after, the incident was written about in both local and international newspapers, and for months after the event itself, literal trainloads of sightseers came from all over the province of Ulster and beyond. An industry of sorts became to be from this, and for a time thereafter, transporting the persons from Garvard train station to the Berryman house to view it. Tommy Turner, a local man, followed this trade, and as two have been reported as saying, sometimes it was like a day at the fair with so many people there. People of that time, even though not long in years, may have had a totally different way of thinking than we are used to ourselves today. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show will improve over time, hopefully. So if you can, bear with me. Once again, send any questions and requests for images or topics in this episode to crimesireland at gmail.com.